GI Connect is an initiative of Core to Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the GI Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core to Ed website. Hello everyone, this is the first GI Connect podcast series on gastrointestinal oncology. It has three episodes. We are now covering episode two, immunotherapy approaches in metastatic and advanced colorectal and gastric cancers. My name is Dominic Modest. I'm a medical oncologist from the Charité in Berlin, Germany. And I'm here with Dr. Jenny Seligmann from the University of Leeds and Dr. Autumn McGree from the University of North Carolina in the US. Welcome to both of you. Before we start, um, we have been addressing a few additional targeted questions and agents in the first episode, and now really focus on immuno-oncology uh, in gastric and colorectal cancer, and in particular on recent developments. So the first question that I'd like to send to Jenny Seligman is, what do we do with MSI high metastatic colorectal cancer? Should we use immuno-oncology agents alone? Should we use combinations of them? Or should we go a step further, like uh, in other entities like lung and gastric cancer, and try to combine immunotherapy with classic chemotherapy? Sure. Thanks, Dominic. Um, so there's been a lot of really exciting developments in MSI high colorectal cancer, and we're now in a position where we have really solid first-line data. So I think we can feel quite firm in our beliefs that we should be treating these patients with IO in the first line. So Keynote 7, 177, of course, gave us this randomised data, and then we can my response will build upon that data. So with with um, in that trial, what we saw with single agent NAVO was patients had improved PFS, they had a, a good response rate, and really importantly, they had durable responses. So there's a lot of patients that are going to do really well from these drugs anyway. Another huge standout from the NEVO data was the um, toxicity and the quality of life data. And this is, this is really important because I think we need to consider that in this patient population, um, there are quite a lot of elderly patients and we need to think about those patients as well, not only those who were recruited to the trial. However, we've also got um, data from Checkmate 142 that was presented in ESMO 2020, showing us that Nevo Ipi is showing improved response rates. Um, so is there a subset of patients that actually would be better with this initial um, increase in efficacy? Um, again, um, that regimen was well tolerated um, with low dose um, epi. So again, that feels like a really good option. So I suppose, how do you select the patients that should have combination instead of single agent, knowing that a lot would have done well with single agent anyway? So if we go back to Keynote 177, some things that might jump out. And so number one, there was an early crossover of the curves. Who are these patients? How can we identify them? Um, we also have young patients with potentially resectable disease or high, high burden disease. They may be better with a doublet approach rather than a single agent. Um, and there was some, there was some um, 
some hint in the um, subgroup analyses that the KRAS mutant patients might not do quite as well as the, the other biomarker groups. So, so there would be some groups that I would think about giving combination to. But certainly, I think there's a, there's a big role for the, the single agent. And of course, um, financial toxicity may come in that, into that as well in, in terms of what, what's deliverable. In terms of combination with chemotherapy, this is, of course, uh, an interesting route as well, um, particularly, again, with these patients um, who seem to progress quickly on single agent NEVO. Um, and as I understand, there are several ongoing trials, so hopefully we'll, we'll get some um, answers from those. I, I agree. I, I think the ability to give somebody a single agent um, immune checkpoint inhibitor in the first line is really appealing. I think the emerging question will really be, you know, what do we do for these patients when they grow resistant to immunotherapy? And, and are we going to be able to rescue them with chemotherapy or is their, their runway going to be somewhat short at that point? But I think certainly the, the trial data is convincing enough. And of course, you know, in the U United States, we have an approval now um, to give um, IO as a single agent in the first line setting. So I assume there's a certain clarity how to proceed with metastatic colorectal cancer. We just have one phase three trial, which is convincing in itself, and we are waiting more. Um, I think it's not that easy in, in terms of gastric cancer. I think the data uh, that have been presented, uh, I think, over the year 2020 and um, at least are to be awaited for the next years. I think um, there are many, many, many trials running. Um, some of them will be presented um during 2021 um, and in the course of the next two, three, four years, um, affecting uh, not only metastatic uh, gastric cancer patients, but also uh, patients with localized uh, or advanced disease. Um, but I think the data that we have are more or less uh, focused on metastatic disease. So what would your standard at the moment be? Where do immuno-oncology agents fit best for whom in gastric cancer? Um, and what are the options that you are eagerly waiting for or the problems that you foresee um, for the near future to implement further drugs into that setting? Yeah, so I mean, this was certainly, um, <laughs> this was certainly an area where we were inundated with data almost so quickly that, um, you know, trying to sort it out has been somewhat of a challenge. Um, you know, we sort of started 2020 with, um, at least in the United States, an approval for pembrolizumab for patients in the third line setting. Um, and now we have multiple trials looking at how to bring immune therapies into earlier lines of therapy. The challenges with some of these trials is that they've combined a lot of different cohorts of patients. So, you know, Keynote 590, which was a first-line study looking at pembrolizumab with chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone, um, included patients with both squamous cell and adenocarcinoma. I think that trial was certainly driven largely by the 75% of patients who had squamous cell carcinomas of the esophagus. But the Checkmate 649 study really was the study that looked at the role of immune checkpoint inhibitors with chemotherapy and adenocarcinomas. And I, I think for my practice, um, what I've taken away from this study is that certainly patients with a PDL1 expression um, score, CPS score um, that is higher seem to derive more benefit from these drugs. So in that trial, um, when they sort of did their subset analyses of patients whose tumors had CPS scores, less than five or less than one, um, the survival just wasn't as 
significant. And so at least in my practice, I think if you, you have an adenocarcinoma with a CPS score that's at least five, then I think it's very reasonable to combine nivolumab uh, with chemotherapy. Um, I think we just have to be really cautious that we don't expose patients to the potential toxicity of an immune checkpoint inhibitor if we don't think they're going to get the benefit. I, I think Keynote 062, which actually was a first-line study that looked at the role of pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy alone versus pembro plus chemo um, really gave us some good information about patients whose CPS scores are higher. And so in that study, it looked like if the tumor CPS score was greater than 10, um, then there was a role for single agent pembrolizumab. And so I think that's a really important niche patient population that we shouldn't miss for gastric cancer. If they do have a, a higher CPS score, then I think giving them single agent pembrolizumab is another option depending on the bulk of their disease. Thanks a lot. Um, quite interesting. Um, I think for the use of immuno-oncology agents in gastric cancer, um, you just mentioned you're working with the CPS score. Um, and I always wonder, with all these populations, CPS negative, greater than one, greater than five, greater than 10, um, from different cohorts, um, it seems quite irritating uh, from the outside to, to define the cutoff, to understand the cutoff. So. At least we, I think, work with that because the labels come with the CPS score. What else in terms of biomarkers do you use um, to select patients with gastric cancer? Um, the question goes to both of you uh, as for a potential uh, immuno-oncology uh, approach. Well, well, I, I would argue, too, even more challenging is when the approval comes without the biomarkers. So, you know, at least in the United States, the FDA has approved um, both nivolumab and and um, pembrolizumab here in the in the last two weeks in the first line setting, ne neither one of which came with um, a companion biomarker. And so you have to be really cautious that in these settings where you're not having to show um, a companion biomarker that patients aren't just blanket, you know, being treated with these drugs when when the data really hasn't been digested appropriately. Um, I, I think what's also somewhat alarming is when you look at these subsets and you look at some of the, the studies um, where patients, you know, without expression, you know, or low expression have really high response rates, you know, there's always some discordance in these trials. And so it's just really hard when you're navigating this in the clinic to say, okay, well, if this CPS score is really low, does that mean you're just absolutely not going to have a response? And should I not at least try this? I think, unfortunately, we're not left with another good option at the moment. So we really haven't seen another emerging biomarker for um, for immune therapy um, from a predictive response. I, I think it's going to be more complicated than just one potential gene expression. I, I think there's going to ultimately need to be some sort of signature approach here where, you know, you have a cadre of genes that pretend a better response like we've seen with some of the melanoma data. Yeah, I mean, the, the field of predictive biomarkers has forever been quite difficult in gastrointestinal cancer. I mean, you, you just look back to cetuximab and panitumumab and the, the the number of patients that are required to um, be really confident that you're identifying a robust predictive biomarker. I, I think it's a very difficult field. Um, and to go back to colorectal cancer, um, there hasn't been a particularly convincing biomarker that's been presented. pdl one hasn't been shown to be particularly 
particularly helpful. Um, TMB might show um, some promise, but again, some of the difficulty will be with the number of patients that are available to then be able to prove that a biomarker is indeed predictive. So I think this is going to be a, a, a difficult area, but, but one of intense research, I suggest, over the next five years or so. Thanks. Um, I think to sum up a bit uh, at that point in between the discussion, uh, I think we're all struggling uh, that apart from MSI high patients um, to, to identify the patients in gastrointestinal cancers um, that are ideal candidates. Um, I think with the CPS, we have something that can be used uh, in the upper GI cancers. Um, but at the moment, maybe I'm a bit more worried about the MSS patients and in colorectal cancer, um, presenting the vast majority, at least in the metastatic uh, context. Has anyone an idea which patients out of this population, are, are they patients that could benefit from immuno-oncology approaches? Um, and with which biomarker, potential biomarkers? So I, I think this is a really good point. I mean, there's been, it's really exciting, the the um, immunotherapy and colorectal cancer, but we can't get away from the fact that this represents four to five percent of the entire population. So any strategies for MSS patients are are really important. Um, I suppose it's a two-pronged thing. So, so, so number one, um, are there patients that um, respond to NEVO-IPI, um, for example, within the MSS population? Um, so we're going to talk about the NISH trial in the next episode, but, you know, there were patients that had pathological responses um, who had um, proficient mismatch repair. Um, there's also been an a, um, article in JAMA Oncology, look at looking at Derva-TREM, um, suggesting that there's overall survival benefit um, with the combination compared with best supportive care in unselected patients. And they go as far as to suggest TMB might be helpful. But again, there was no PFS benefit. So I think the, the jury's certainly still out on that. Um, the main strategies in MSS at the moment um, is looking at a combination modality to evoke an immunogenic response that will then allow checkpoint inhibition to be applied successfully. Um, so there's multiple strategies being tested currently with um, in combination with anti-EGFR agents. Um, there's um, the, the tribe group um, have a full FOXCV plus VEV plus a TESO trial. There's combinations with vaccines. Um, there's novel approaches. So for example, um, with agents that are targeting other stimulatory or inhibitory co-receptors, um, such as LAG3. So there's a lot going on. There have been some important negatives. So, for example, the MODAL trial was negative, um, which looked at a tazolizumab with um, fluoropyrimidine plus bevacizumab versus um, chemotherapy plus bevalone and emblaze. So... I think there's some way to go. It's a very active field. There's lots of trials. There's lots of ideas. So I hope in time we'll find signals even of subpopulations within the, the overall populations. But at the moment, there doesn't seem to be uh, a focus into a particular biomarker group. Autumn, do you want to add something? Well, I'll say from a, a personal perspective, you know, I think we do have preclinical data um, that there is potentially some synergy between inhibiting the EGFR pathway and, and upregulating 
the potential for response to immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, you know, our group did present um, at ASCO GI 2021 um, a phase two study that looked at the combination of panitubumab with nebo IPI for um, patients with microsatellite-stable metastatic colorectal cancer. Um, the study did meet its primary endpoint. It was a non-randomized study, but I'll say, you know, sort of from a personal standpoint, treating these patients, um, the the duration of responses that we saw um, for patients who really shouldn't have responded to immunotherapy was was very impressive. Um, so I, I think you know having good tissue on these patients that are enrolled on these trials, so that we can go back and learn you know who were these patients that had these durable responses and and why did they have these responses and you know what was it about their immune microenvironment that made them you know more sensitive? I think we're going to learn a lot from these patients who enroll in these trials. So I think it's it's fair to conclude at this point that we have a certain panel of potentially predictive biomarkers um, for colorectal cancer, which is MSI high. We have the same biomarker for gastric cancer, which is complemented by CPS scoring, which does maybe less good, but still working. Um, and an MSS colorectal cancer, I think it's fair to say that we do sign of a kind of a reverse translation. So we are having a lot of ideas. We have understood that immuno-oncology approaches in MSS colorectal cancer requires combination and I think creative uh, combinations um, and that we will have to learn mechanisms from clinical signals rather than we understand uh, the whole system up front and put it into clinics. So we are really trying to, to, to find strategies, what, what we have uh, in terms of treatment options and then try to identify uh, backwards, uh, who is responding or not, which is a very successful paradigm, I think, uh, in colorectal cancer. When Jenny just mentioned EGFR inhibitors, I think they were never understood uh, in the lab, but in fact, uh, while treating patients, and it appears very similar in metastatic colorectal cancer with MSS tumors. We will have to learn from the patients. I think that could be a nice end of the episode. Uh, thank you very much for joining um, and thank you very much to Autumn and Jenny for the very nice discussion. This GI Connect podcast was brought to you by Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit core2ed.com for more information.